I think the future of cocktails is textured cocktail as opposed to necessarily mm. just the flavours. And so when you talk about the fat and then we think about salty and fatty, you know, it's always like a nut, which is a mm -hmm. delicious thing in itself. So I think all of those things that you mentioned can be indulgent. Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is Tristan Stevenson. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Morgan Gay and Darren Hogarty. Morgan is a food and drink futurologist who has a finger on the pulse of things like societal behavior, geopolitics, history, trends, fads, and sensorial perception and biology, which she uses to advise big brands on what we may be eating and drinking up to decades into the future. Darren is head pastry chef at the Michelin star restaurant Chapter One in Dublin. And he is also the recipient of Pastry Chef of the Year Award from Food and Wine Ireland in both 2017 and 2019. On this episode, we discuss all things delicious and satisfying, focusing on that most Moorish of tastes, sweetness. We cover the innate human desire for sweet things and how it links to things like seasonality and, of course, the foods and drinks that we eat and drink today. We discuss indulgence and how fats and sugar can work in tandem to create satisfying desserts and drinks. And we discuss the next food and drink trends, as well as how the pandemic will influence our choices going out. Then we touch on things like uh, the trend towards alternative sweeteners. Finally, moving on to other fascinating topics like 3D printing garnishes, and 3D printing drinks, um, as well as transferring chef skills onto the bar. Really hope you enjoy the conversation. I am here in the studio with Dr. Morgan Gay and Darren Hogarty. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hey, yeah, lovely to be here. Yeah. Well, it is. Uh, these are some of my favorite episodes where we get to talk about flavor and ingredients and all that lovely stuff. And I am thrilled to be joined by you two. Perhaps we could start by getting a sort of potted bio or CV from, from each of you. Do you want to go first, Morgan? Yeah, I'm a food futurologist. I look at what we're going to be eating in the future, drinking in the future, and why. I think that's really, it's not really about the fads, it's about the overriding trends. And I usually look at an 81-year cycle. Um, obviously, I'm not going 81 years in the future, but that's the kind of stuff I look at. And I consult to... Anyone who wants to have some information about the future. Uh, I'm, I'm the head pastry chef up in a restaurant in Dublin called Chapter One. Um, I've been there for 17 years. It was a previously a one mission star restaurant. There's been a takeover um, with another restaurant, the Greenhouse, which is two mission stars, and we're hoping to keep on going there uh, forward as we move. And uh, before that, I was in London. I was the head pastry chef up in Petrus Gordon Ramsay's restaurant on Kinnerton Street. Nice. Oh, well, um, there's going to be a lot to talk about there with pastry and sugar and fats and sweet stuff, because that's, that, that's where I really want to center this <laughs> episode, this podcast today. So that's cool. So Darren, given that you kind of have transcended out of just the pastry chef thing, just the pastry chef thing, uh, and, 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 you know, involved in the drinks program as well, have you got any kind of tips on modifying drinks um, in ways that can kind of add a sense of indulgence and, and depth and quality to the cocktail? 
Well, what we were doing in um, in, in chapter one, what we do is um, because you have to play your strengths. I'm not a I'm not a bar person by trade, so I mean I wouldn't know all the alcohols, and I certainly wouldn't be any good behind the bar. But I brought kind of my strengths. So, for example, um, one of our uh, cocktails um, that we had on, and we were in a competition in Ireland, like the best kind of cocktails, and I think we got like fifteen. Uh, I think we placed top twenty. Nice. Um, was we did a rhubarb macaroon one, but I made macaroons just to infuse uh, vodka. All right. Um, nice. So infusing, so we got the whole almondy thing going through mm. it, and then we made our own rhubarb soda and uh, stuff like that. And that's kind of what we bring. Like at Christmas, we make mince pies just to infuse um, into a, a mince pie martini. The, the same thing. We, do you, we do, you do the pastry and the mince the meat and everything? Thing, the whole it. thing. We make them mm. and at the same time we kind of show the kind of younger guys how you make them and all and then we just pour a load of kind of uh, martini ingredients over them, let, let them sit and um, strain them twice through J-cloth, make sure there's no kind of uh, sediment or anything in it and um, that's kind of what we do as well, you know. Yeah, so we nice. Bring that kind of end to it. I had a friend who made his own mincemeat and he barrel aged it. And then when yeah. he was done with the barrel, he sent it to me and we filled it with, uh, I can't remember if we put whiskey in it or brandy, one or two. And so yeah. infused it in that way in the wood. And it's quite fun actually making something just so you can then yeah, yeah. Like put it made, into something else. We had, a, we had a cocktail on, we just called it Coffee Slice and we were actually using um, Jenny Walker Blue. And um, we made Milfoy's just to pour the whiskey over. And leave it like at, a, at room yeah. temperature until it took it in and it uh, took all them kind of like the, those lovely kind of burnt kind of butter flavors on. Cool. Morgan, when you're looking into the future um, to start thinking about what we're going to be eating, do you draw a lot of that insight from the past? Because I mean, like with most things, they sort of go in revolutions, don't they? Um, trends kind of rotate around. Um, is that a sort of source of inspiration or are you looking, is it more sci-fi than that? Yeah, I don't look. I don't look at the past for food and anything to do with food trends. Although I'm a food futurologist, I think it's a little bit of a red herring. It's a bit naughty, really, because I'm looking at geopolitical, economic, um, environmental, biobehavior trends. Things that really catapult us. The sort of zeitgeist. The the aspiration that we're going to be living into, what we're going to want and why. And food is just part of that because food doesn't exist in a vacuum. But it's not necessarily about looking back at what we're eating, saying, oh, well, we had allotments, so we're probably going to have those again. It's not that. It's looking, it's looking at these cyclical, massive sort of trajectories and forces. That's the 81 years. But the food thing is really the bit on top. It's it. Everything else has to underpin it. So it's not about fads. It's not like oh, pumpkin spice or something like that. It's really mm. a bit longer than that. So pretty much ten years. That's a, sort of an area that I'm looking into. And so it sounds like you're looking at things like economics and supply chain and trying to establish then what may be available to future humans and what might not, and therefore how our kind of food decisions and the recipes we're going to cook and and how our how our diets are going to change based on those things. Yeah, and also just really, I mean, the, the, the truth is whatever, because I work with some of the biggest brands in the world and they're creating and really innovating on product and some of it's fantastic and most of it never lasts, even gets to the shelves. If it gets to the shelves, it doesn't last that long, six months to a year because it can be great, but people aren't ready for it or it's not the right thing at the right time. So even if I could say this is what people are 
going to be doing in the future. If, if you don't get that right, it doesn't matter about what's going to be available because we might have loads of corn available, but if no one wants to eat corn in 10 years, then it's pointless. True. Um, sugar's a pretty safe bet though, right? I mean, everyone seems to like sugar. Darren, your career is sort of based yeah. on the back of it. Um, it is actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's, I, there's something about sugar, right? I mean, where, where do you guys think that sort of human desire, that need, craving, if you like, for sugar comes from? I think it's um, the, that reward system of your brain. You know that part where it's like, it's either been a long week or if you've saved up for a meal or whatnot and you're out and you kind of say to yourself, I'm going to have a nice pudding and I'm not going to think twice about it. And I'm going to have these things. And I, I think that's what it is. I think that's why people have things like that. Like they have like that 11 o'clock slump in the morning and then they say, I'm going to have a croissant and a coffee and stuff like that. I think that's what it is. I think it's just as much kind of like psychological as anything. I think, I think that's what happens to people, you know, um, from my end anyway. Yeah, I guess it, it kind of goes back to that whole, as the, like the hunter-gatherer, mm-hmm. you know, the ripe fruit um you know carbohydrate quick calories right easy to you know metabolize and there you go that's that burst of energy um and like you say it triggers a reward system but we've all been sent into overdrive with it haven't we really because the availability of sugar now where it once was i guess just sort of seasonal when fruit was right yeah now Uh, now it's like like i can just book into your restaurant every night and um come and do the sort of pastry tasting course and uh which sounds like that could be really good. I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. expect you do a pastry tasting course, but, uh, it, it, you know. Um, I was going to say, it's exactly what you say, Tristan, is that when we go right back, it's actually the thing that indicated to us that it wasn't going to kill us. If it was sweet, if it was bitter, it was usually dangerous yeah. food. We'll talk about that hunter-gatherer. So the sweetness and usually the fruit was the thing. And, of course, what we've mm. done. I mean, really, when we had sugar rations during the war, so this availability is really in a time of... of well, we're in, we're in good times, the fact that we can have as much sugar as we like and that we can afford it. And that's why we're seeing more restriction and we'll see more levies and taxes and sort of rest, yeah, restriction, basically, on the amount of sugar we're going to be allowed. And I think we're already doing it to ourselves. But, as, but one of the things that will really play, play into the pastry chefing world and the dessert world is that we're expecting much more beautiful uh, desserts, much more a real... It's not just any old rubbish because it's sugar. We actually want something now to really feel special. So if we're going to have a treat, it needs to be a special treat. And needs to look I, find, um, I find people's palates have gotten a lot um, more um, sophisticated over the years, if, if I'm being honest. Um, like beforehand, like I say, um, a lot of desserts would have been very sugar heavy and people would have assumed that they taste good because they're sugar heavy. But now a lot more people, and, and even like young people in, in, in the restaurant, we have like 15-year-olds come in for the birthday. And they tell you like that bergamot lemon dessert was very well balanced and very floral and stuff like this, you know, and um, they are they're getting a lot more sophisticated. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I find that, you know, and that's a good, I say that in a positive way. It's a good thing, you know. Yeah, well, they're doing that trade off really where they're eating their, you know, it's a, these generations that are now really reading the labels. Mm. So they're eating really well and having, you know, much more vegetables and a healthier perhaps diet than maybe 10 or 15 mm. years ago. And so when they do have the treat, they really know about that treat. Yeah, it's not just, yeah. like I said, you know, any old junk. It needs mm. to be special. And, and they are used to that. They're exposed to that sort of food porn on, on social media. So their expectations are much higher, as you say. Great for you. 
Yeah, no, it, it, it is. It is great. And, you know, it's, it's a challenge and sometimes I can ask you questions that you have to struggle to find an answer for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so do you think things can be like too sweet? It can be too much? People oh, recognize 100%, that? 100%. Um, not only can it be too sweet because of like just the way um, everybody's reared, et cetera, et cetera and, and where they're reared, they have an idea of what sweet would be. So like, I mean, in Ireland, you'd have kind of Cadbury's chocolate and you'd say, this is like what chocolate is. Whereas France, children would be brought up on a kind of, on a, on a better chocolate, to be honest. And they'd have a, a, a better palate, like you say. So things can be like overly sweet, like, and, and it's, it, it's all from kind of that way, what they're eating as a child and how they're coming forward. And um, they'd come in and taste things to have like 70% chocolate, for example, and they'd, they'd automatically kind of go, this is very bitter, it's very this. Whereas in reality, they're tasting chocolate mm. and probably not really comprehending it completely, you know? Mm. My experience is that children seem to have a higher tolerance of sweet. Like mm. um, the stuff that I ate when I was a kid and observing what my children are, are able to consume at the level of sweetness that it's at I, by the way i don't consider them like guinea pigs or some sort of test no, no. um you know it's incredible like i mean i don't eat sugar at all anyway but um no i don't eat carbohydrates either but that's a different story altogether but um so i, I very rarely eat sweet things but um they will they will consume sweet stuff like it's you know just as much as they can get and um yeah i wonder if that's just sort of like Given they're younger, they just have a little bit less control over that that impulse and that reward system, and they just want to kind of, you know, keep pulling that lever. I think that's what I think that's what it is. Yeah, you know, but, um, pulling your lever probably because oh, yeah, well, they're yeah, uncontrollable, that don't they? <laughs> and it's funny if you go back and do you ever go back and taste something that you had as a kid, and then you taste it and kind of go, "That's so sweet! How did I ever eat that?" Mm. And uh, as an adult, like you go back and you taste like a chocolate bar or something, you kind of go, "It's just packed full of sugar. It automatically hits the back of you." And then, um, yeah, your teeth are crying out. <laughs> yeah, your teeth go bendy. And, yeah, the whole um, thing, like... Yeah. I mean, those, um, you know, like the frozen sort of tubes of like, I don't know, cola-flavoured thing or mm-hmm. like a raspberry-flavoured thing that's bright blue. Those th- the sweetness of those things is nuts. Like, they're basically syrup frozen down. And um, I used to love chewing on those things. And then it melts and it tastes even sweeter because, of course, things are more sweet when they're not frozen or cold like you know if you eat melted ice cream it's crazy sweet as well right yeah um and uh yeah i mean the thought of one of the i just i don't think i could get through a whole one um but um it reminds me of some sometimes when i travel and drink cocktails certain markets certain um countries certain cultures seem to have either a higher tolerance of sweet or they prefer to drink sweeter drinks or sweetness you know, it's just more a part of the cocktail experience. Like I'm thinking particularly where, uh, when I've been around the Middle East, like some of the cocktails you get served there. And yeah, I'm not, it's not just like one drink on a menu, but like the whole menu, sweetness is this sort of consistent theme through it. Um, have you found that? And I mean, have you, Darren, have you found that in sort of cooking different desserts from different cultures that you have oh, to adapt recipes? 100%. And- yeah, no, 100%. Um, but even cocktails, I did the cocktails in chapter one and we had a guy in and he was, um, he was from Thailand. And you know yourself for like an old fashioned cocktail, for example, he put in 30 mils of sugar syrup. Oh and my. I, I was like 30 mils and he's like yeah 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 but that's the way they drank it and it was just like it was like the sweetest thing mm. and like I, as you say that as well um, in desserts they'd use like condensed milk instead of like traditional milk and stuff like that you know it's the same in coffee um, actually yeah yeah you're completely yeah. right yeah 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 
And I remember the first time tasting one of those coffees and I was just like... <laughs> well, it's interesting yeah. you mentioned the Middle East. I mean, they've got a massive, really high rate of diabetes, but also the Coca-Cola recipe is very different in the, in the Middle East than any other place in the world. It's, wow. it's sweeter. It's even sweeter because mm. they love it so much. You think of all the baklava and all of the mm. honey and sugar syrups. Yeah, and, that's what I put it down yeah. to as well. The kind of food culture that's there it. has got a sort of baseline that's already quite sweet, right? Yeah. And so yeah. in order for it to feel <clears throat> indulgent, you have to layer yeah. another layer of sweetness on top of that. Otherwise, it's just like, cool, we just we eat honey and baklava all the time. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. It's got to be sweeter than that. And our and taste preferences are, 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 you know, we, we think that taste is something that we just have, but it's, it starts in the womb, it's in vitro. Yeah. And mm. we're socialized around it. And it's why certain people like the certain foods they like. I mean, you only have to think about even the, just the difference between the US and the UK. And yeah. even a flavor like root beer, for example. You know, what's the history of that, that we haven't been socialized around drinking that? We think it's like germaline, because for us it is. And then in the US, of course, it. everything's root beer flavored. Yeah, it's a rare thing, yeah. though, isn't it? It's yeah, not it is, typical. Yeah. Well, Dandelion and Burdock is, oh, is just, kind of yeah. similar in the UK, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah. I don't know what that flavor is, like sarsaparilla or something. Um, but right. uh, yeah, I really, really like that flavor. I used to think Dandelion and Burdock was like Coca-Cola, but better. Um, and then when I discovered root beer, was this, there's this whole culture of it in the States. I was like, yeah, my people, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it's even with their bread, like the likes of the bread in the US to the UK, like in Ireland, like their bread has a lot of sugar in it. Yeah. A lot, a lot of sugar in it. It's like overly sweet, you know? But yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's just what, you know, it, I guess it gets passed down through culture and it's just the norm. Um, and every society has its own norms. Not one is right over another. It's just mm. the way. For me, like if I'm, if I'm sort of thinking about sweetness and indulgence, the ultimate sort of pairing or combination um, is when you get fat involved as well. Um, and, you know, you've got things like creamy drinks, but so many of these desserts that we kind of know and love and crave and feel like the most sort of indulgent experiences like creme brulee and things like that. Mm. Um, what's your sort of take on this, Darren? Like this sort of almost like holy combination of, of, of sweetness and, and fat. Um, and why do you think it works so well? It's just one of those things, isn't it? It's just when the sweetness levels are right, as in if it's like, we'd say like a really nice caramel or something like that. And then like you say, we say it's a creme brulee and the cream is good quality cream. It's mouthfeel and it's mouthfeel with the right sugars. And, and, and that's it. It's, it's, it's brilliant. You know, and kind of our job as um, as chefs is always to make sure, first and foremost, our portion size is generous, but at the same time, not dangerous because it is sugar. So, like, I mean, we kind of make sure that you're getting it. And then we do try, or always try and find, we try and get an acid in there if we can to cut through it. You know, so like you say, if you're having like, like a creme brulee, someone might on the side have marmalade ice cream or something like that, you know, it might be something mm. kind of citrusy to cut through it, you know, mm. or there's raspberries on your brulee or there's like a lemon biscotti and um, mm. things like that. And that's always the kind of where your brain goes when we're doing kind of sweets. Yeah, nice. I... I, uh, a little bit of acidity is good. Uh, it's balancing, isn't it? Right. And I guess that goes back to that exactly. whole like ripe fruit thing, right? It's like, exactly, you, know, you know, good, good fruit has a certain acidity to it mm. as well as that sweetness, doesn't it? Otherwise it's a bit insipid. Um, I always think like when you buy grapes from, um, some supermarkets, any supermarket, maybe, um, you know, they tend to be pretty insipid and that's often due to a lack of balance, sweetness and acidity. They're just bland, right? Yeah. And um, 
you know, it's, in a way, like I, I think I feel like cocktail making is is sort of like Frankensteining fruit juice with alcohol in it. <laughs> um, not for all cocktails, but for anything that's like in the sort of sour, fizz, spritzy yeah. fi- family, because you're kind of taking sweetness, which you find in fruit ripe fruit you're taking acidity which you find in ripe fruit and then you're balancing those two to more or less the same balance that you would find naturally in you know a granny smith apple or in a ripe plum or in a peach Mm. um, or in a slice of melon but instead of just sort of it being melon flavor you're going to bring in like you know a little bit of that herbal liqueur and you're going to bring in a little bit of um you know some i don't know spice or some other fruit or whatever it might be and so you're kind of building this fruity alcoholic drink that is sort of unnatural in its makeup but nonetheless sort of fits that blueprint of what it's like to taste really tasty ripe fruit if well executed i completely agree with you because that, that's how we started doing the cocktails in um, in the restaurant because uh the, the, we just at the time we didn't have a barman or, or an experienced barman should say um so we thought like from a pastry section's point of view that we could really kind of help as in like the way you're saying um we applied that like what we do with fruits and stuff like that so um we actually did like like we say like a gin apple and then we we know dill walks with apple so we did like a dill syrup to carry mm-hmm. through and stuff like that and um that's kind of yeah that's kind of where we went with it and how we kind of evolved yeah. i suppose you know yeah yeah i mean like you say dill goes with apple perhaps there's like whatever kind of compound there is in dill that gives its dilly flavor maybe it's in tiny quantities in an apple and so what you're doing is like amplifying that apple flavor mm-hmm. and you're taking the apple it's like you've, it's like you've created a new um sort of strain of apple that's yeah. like dill oriented and that's i think when you know when flavor works well because you're like okay i see the sort of basis for it but it's been sort of modified in one direction or another um you know the 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 sort of modifying flavor is not challenging that original flavor it's sort of complementing it in an exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah nice you, i mean you know we're talking about sort of sweetness and fat do you think that you can create sort of indulgent experiences with other tastes so like salt umami can bitterness be indulgent in any way what do you think I think all of those can be indulgent. I think one of the things that when we're looking at the future and you sort of mentioned it when you talked about the fat and the sugar and it's about that mouthfeel and I think the, where we're really going now is not necessarily in the... We've been in flavour a long time and texture is really the next... It's, it's, it's the difference between why we like what we like and why we don't. Most of the times that people don't like the food they don't like, t- typically it's textural. It's like, oh, it's slimy and also it's cultural. So if we're in the Asian country, slimy is like a positive thing. In the West, it's a negative thing. So we start to really sort of think about the texture more. And and there are companies that I've worked for that all they do is create texture. And so I think the future of cocktails is textured cocktail as opposed to necessarily Mm. just the flavors. And so when you talk about the fat or, and then we think about salty and fatty you know, it's always like a nut, which is a mm-hmm. delicious thing in itself. So I think all of those things that you mentioned can be indulgent. But I also think it's about the texture, the texture piece. It, you know, it's so, it's so huge. It's so creative. It's innovative. And now we can use 3D printing so we can really create, we can create air and space into our food and sugar lends itself brilliantly to that. So I think it's a massive uh, region that we haven't quite explored yet. Yeah, texture is an interesting one. And there's, we're, I, I always feel like our mouths are so well tuned to detect yeah. minute differences in texture. You know, like 
a, you know, it's a, a, like a, a slightly lumpy custard is just the yeah. most revolting thing. Yeah. And yet, you know, you compare that to, you know, a perfectly smooth sauce and it's just the most delicious thing. And there's just subtle differences that you can't detect with your eyes, really. And yet once they get in the mouth, they, they make all the difference for, for a meal. And I mean, the same goes for cocktails. You can, a cocktail can look spectacular and then you can get it in your mouth and it might, you know, it might have the sensation of being a little bit watery yeah. or, or, you know, overly creamy, too thick, too like kind of heavy on the palate. You know, you don't want that. Say, you know, you're making a creamy cocktail, something like a pina colada. You don't want it to be like one of those McDonald's uh, McFlurry things, you know, you want, you want it to be able to sip on it, but it wants to have that indulgent richness to it at the same time. I think um, for me, I think indulgence as well. I think sometimes um, effort goes a long way with it. As in what I mean is um, one of the nicest desserts I've ever eaten was I had a, I was in, I was in London. I was in a restaurant. I can't remember the name now, but I had a yellow peach, but it was baked in salt. And because it was so ripe and so sweet and it was baked in salt and they bake it in salt for 45 minutes at 180 and it, it, it kind of got like, you know them um, Swedish sweets, kind of salty ones? Um, it, it was like one of them and they just, they served it with just ice cream and it was absolutely brilliant. It was this kind of sticky, salty, mm. citrusy thing and, and, and it was really, like you say, really creamy ice cream and it's honestly, it's one of the best things I've ever eaten. And um if it wasn't for Instagram, I would have stole it, to be honest. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, but no, it was brilliant, you know. So I do think um, with indulgence, sometimes effort goes a long way. And if people are going to put this effort in like with salt or bitterness, you'd have it and you'd go, that's really brilliant, you know. I think salt, um, it pretty much universally makes everything taste better. Like yeah. just small amounts, you know. You don't need to overdo it. It's just a no. tiny amount. Not so, even so it tastes salty, but at low sort of imperceivable levels, it just amplifies the positive qualities of pretty much any dish, unless, of yeah. course, it's already very salty. Um, like an anch- I don't find anchovies need a lot of salt on them, for example. <laughs> it's that fast food triad though isn't it it's the salt fat and the sugar and boom that's it yeah the brain that's, goes yeah yeah more. this is me yeah yeah oh well and the msg of course <laughs> like yeah, you know yeah, the, yeah. The, the the um umami not to be forgotten I, was, I mean when i asked about indulgence in umami of course you've got things like bowls of ramen right which is extre- mm. you only need to look at the way people eat those and yeah. um it's almost see- religious the way people eat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly um Morgan, just going back to you were saying about texture in cocktails. Um, what kind of textures will we be using in mixed drinks in eighty-one years' time? Do you think? Oh, in eight, I have no idea. In eighty-one <laughs> years' time, that's, that's a clue. I'm talking about sort of seven years. You know, between now and seven years, I think. I mean, yeah. we're, we're starting to see a bigger development in that in that space because it's cultural, and it's. And we also have technology now, which we can really start to make things a bit like boba tea, you know, with the popping bubbles, yeah. things like that. So we're becoming more accustomed to having texture in drinks. I mean, it's slow and it's, you know, it's, it's still early days in the West, but there are also, like I said, opportunities with 3D printing so that we can put air into things. So from a food perspective, we can take foods that people might not like because of their texture, like avocado because people who don't like that don't like it because it's texture, it's slimy. And we can puff that with air, we can make crunchy bites. So we could puff things with air and we can make a cocktail crunchy. You know, we can have edible cocktails. We can have, we can already do that, as you know, so that we can have perhaps, 
We can have something that's partly aerated. We can have something that's partly air itself. So we can be playing with all of the different ways in which we can invite flavor in, but also with that mouthfeel perception and all of the subtleties within that. So 3D printing, air, um, aroma, lots of aroma sprays and things like that, ice, and and then again, the creaminess and the, there's just so many places that we can go. And I just think at the moment, we're still in a more traditional place. Do, do you think that um, there's going to be sort of genuine demand for that kind of thing? Because I, I, I sort of spent a period of my career kind of going through the like molecular mixology trend. I had a bar that was quite famous for it in London. And it was extremely popular. And we would mess about with foams and airs and um, smoking. And, you know, we'd make little, the little caviar pearls, all the kind of El Bulli's type bits yeah. and pieces, only not as well executed, um, but, but executed by about a tenth of the size of the team. <laughs> um, and, you know, people loved it. Um, and then they didn't love it so much. And, you know, it kind of felt like it was a, bit of a flash in the pan trend um mm. you know we were freezing drinks with liquid nitrogen and serving them like honeycomb and all this kind of thing yeah i just gonna say that i remember being in a bar in scotland and the same thing they had martinis like as in it both were frozen like rocks yeah and you just kind of you know you like um and uh I, I i think it's great the force of the second time around but i think then as you kind of progress and as you kind of get older you kind of go I'd really like a nice, well-made martini. Yeah. I, th- I think yeah, there's a place for both. And I, and I think mm. one of the things that we're seeing That's in this, big, this trend right now that we're going into is that we've had two desperate years of unhappiness, really. Yeah. We've spent 18 months locked down. It's been quite miserable. We've had a real paring down of our lives, asking ourselves, what does it mean to be human? Re- re-evaluating our life, really, in, in its entirety. And so it's been quite, you know, a lot of people in tracksuits making bread. So we've got that thing that's been playing out. And on the flip side of that, what we're going to start seeing is a little bit of glamour coming back in, Mm. a lot of gold and silver and sparkle and a little bit of razzmatazz because people are sort of, it's about this breaking out, this freedom, Mm. this expression. And so I I think in 2022, moving in 2022, 2023, we're going to really be exploring this creativity and this is going to play into the desserts in a big way. It's, and because, of course, it's still this Instagram place. It's still this social media. Mm. People want to be able to show their world and communicate their world. And, and I just think that we are going to start seeing things a little bit blinged up. It's a bit shimmery and hopeful. It's a big thing about hope and going forward and, and this shimmeriness. I mean, I'm not, it's not about referencing the past. So I don't yeah. think it's about going back to what you were doing. But I think there's also something in nootropics. I think these cocktails will need to have an added benefit. So it's no good that they just look good and taste good and they're sexy and they're textured, but also they have added benefits in them that make you feel better or feel differently. And that I think also we're seeing such a rise in non-alcoholic cocktails and mixers that it's incorporating those as well. I think it's a bit of everything, but it's about real exploration, extreme creativity. Yeah, I like this idea of sort of escapism then. Um, we're going to be looking for things that perhaps we can't get inside the home or inside the house. That's, um, yeah, that's cool. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think, 
I think just on lots of levels, people just want a little bit of sparkle, a bit of, you know, something. Mm-hmm. Make me feel better just for now, yeah. just a little yeah. bit. And that's why it's not about the bar of chocolate at home in front of the telly. No. It, again, it's about this special moment. It's about the moments, about creating these special moments and desserts or treats or whatever those are playing into that celebration. And it's just, it doesn't have to be birthday, just be celebration of, yeah, yeah I'm out. Home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think you're completely right. Um, but, I mean, you guys sort of, had any experience with sort of sugar alternatives in, in cocktails? Have you had? Have you been served one or made one? Or I haven't actually had um, many sugar-free ones. If I'm being honest, where sorry, where there's uh, an alternative being used, but we we were actually looking at using uh, uh, stevia in one, mm. um, just to, to, just to get the kind of all on where we could. Because again, like you say, we're always looking at things like where can we lower sugar and where can we use alternatives when possible. And like you say, as you were saying, Tristan, um, it doesn't add much of a texture to a drink anyway. So where it's possible, we, we would be looking at that. So we're actually, we're actually looking at that next week, actually looking how to bring it in. Um, so that'd be kind of really my only experience with it. If I'm yeah, being, yeah. I wonder honest. if it's like, you know, if we... Because I mean, then there's fat as well, isn't there? It's like some people yeah. want to reduce their fat intake. So like, how can you take fat out of a dessert, for example, and then replace it with something else that gives that sensation of fattiness? Do you, have you done much with that? Yeah, do you know what? It's not easy. Now, it's a lot easier nowadays than it was. Um, so the, the, the kind of best example of that would be like vegan desserts. Mm. Um, vegan desserts very like kind of notoriously difficult to do in the winter because you've no fruits really um, but nowadays there's like 100% kind of vegan chocolate and you can do water ganaches and stuff like that um, so you can add that in but people do have to be aware that when you make like a water ganache so a ganache is basically usually equal cream equal chocolate that's where you get that really velvety texture so when you do a water one the texture is different and it's never going to be cream but you kind of do the best that you can do to your ability. So how do you make it? Sally? So what it is, is it, you do water and chocolate instead. Um, so what do you, what you do is you melt your chocolate. Instead of cream. Instead of cream. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, then, and you're adding in your, you're adding your water and you just blend it to the, just emulsified. And um, you do, you get like a kind of like, like a ganache. That's, um, how do you do that exactly? Cause normally when you're tempering chocolate, if you get water in there, that's a bad thing. Right. So how does um, it? Yeah. That's if you're tempering it. So if you're tempering it, what oh, happens temp- is, yeah. so when you're tempering chocolate and um, what you're doing is uh, you're, you're, you're cool. You're heating up and cooling it down. So it sets for you. Um, and if water gets in, what it does is it immediately sets the fat crystals because it's water, it cools the fat crystals down and the fat, it just sprinkles all the way through and it won't set. But because you're making a ganache, your chocolate will be already melted and then you're adding in hot water and you're emulsifying it really quickly with a hand blender. Ah, okay. And you're, you're essentially taking those two fats together and the hand blender is mechanically making one fat, we'll, mm. we'll call it as in like that way, and it sets. But it is like a moussey texture, but it's, it, it, it's not cream. You know, it's yeah. not. So but could are, you not use another fat in there? So could you not like, I don't know, blend in, you know, groundnut oil or coconut oil or something else that gives the indulgent taste? I mean, because we're talking so, about a vegan option here, right? So Yeah, if you're doing a vegan option, we have, like in the past, like you say, we've done like a lemon oil or an olive oil, but they don't set the way cream would set. Ah, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Because, because it's they're not constantly, dairy. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but coconut oil maybe, because coconut oil's obviously solid at room temperature. Would that work? It, I don't know. Yeah, that, that does work, but it takes on quite a funny texture in the fridge yeah. to get there you know what I mean um, so the other thing can... about coconut oil I find is like it's so inconsistent <laughs> in quality yeah, and, and yeah. It's, they, it goes off, it goes bad so easily right it goes mm. rancid doesn't it yeah. 100% you know yeah. 
Um, but yeah, no, we, we do play around and we try where we can try. But um, I suppose it's just, if just being like, again, just being 100%, 100% honest, you're trying to put out the best you can possibly do. And if you can lower fats where you can, we do. But if we can't, we don't for certain things, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, just because we are getting so personalized with our diet, you know, like, mm. for example, you're having no sugar, Tristan. Um, I can't digest any fat at all. So I oh. can't have avocado and I can't have nuts and I can't yeah. have all yeah. the things. So for me, it's not about, you know, it's, it's about, I mean, it's not about a choice. It's about, uh, I just can't. Every so, you know, reality, exactly. The things so, you just said you can't like have that. is basically my diet. Um. Exactly, right. <laughs> I can't, so I, can't, I don't eat meat and I don't eat or anything with fat in it. Oh, no. So I'm the opposite, exactly. Mm. And I think that's the thing is that whether it's a preference or you're celiac or you're yeah. vegan or you're plant-based or you're, you know, there's so many it, levels it, now. Exactly. Uh, it is so personalised. It, you either have to just say, I am going to go. I mean, there's a load of people who are just going to go and have a blowout yeah. meal and it's fine. Yeah. But I think there are also people that are so finely tuned for different reasons, whether that's health or preference, that mm-hmm. it's almost like you have to leave it up to them, don't you? So you just say, okay, you're a vegan. There will be high-end vegan restaurants. Go there. Yeah, I think yeah. what I'm hearing from you guys is that really the future is more along a sort of personalized approach to food. And not necessarily every venue can cater for every kind of yeah. need, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, what's the point in me coming and ordering a dessert um, from you, Darren, that's going to be compromised on flavor and taste because you want to tick loads of sort of boxes that keep lots and lots of people satisfied, except for the people who just want the full kind of expression of your your skill and, and, and the best tasting creme brulee or, or whatever it is that they can have. Um, and, and that's cool because, you know, a more tailored approach is, is good for everyone. Um, so, do you, I mean, do you think it's fair to say, again, that, you know, it's the future trends are going to be less about everyone shifting in one direction and more about everyone shifting in their own direction for food it's, and drink? It's both, weirdly. I mean, it is, you know, just generally, if we think about the West, we are eating less meat than we have in about 40 years. We just are. And it's moving that way in the West. It's not in other countries and developing nations that are eating more, but we're eating less. And it's not some, for a lot of people, it's not even a conscious choice. We just are doing that. And then on the flip of that, we are also having very much of these bespoke requirements. And I think we're very close to having a device that we can breathe into or that uh, understands our skin. It has our microbiome. It knows our DNA. We scan this device around our kitchen or wherever we're buying food. And it knows that today we're deficient in, uh, deficient in vitamin K, for example. We scan it and it can identify the products that we personally could digest that particular vitamin K today. So it's getting that bespoke. And I think it's a bit like when we used to perhaps in like the early 1900s say, you know, hello, I'm John and I'm a Baptist or I'm a Catholic or whatever. I think now it's, hi, I'm Morgan, I'm a fat-free, whatever, whatever. You know, I think it, we're now identifying ourselves in terms of what we eat. And I think that that is going to continue. But along with this massive trajectory of going forward, where we are generally eating less sugar, we are generally eating less meat, we have more options in a plant-based range, and we're just choosing to mix and match even when we're not conscious that we're doing that. Yeah, I I like this. It could almost be um, like an app where you kind of program in the food you eat and rate it based on 
you know, a few different metrics and then it spits out what you should eat next and sort of refines your preference using some sort of AI process. I could see that in co- working well in cocktails, actually, like a cocktail bar where you score your drink and then it recommends something else based on how you score that and sort of uses everyone else's scores to and, and their preferences to refine you down a certain route. Like a, it's like the YouTube algorithm. Like but Netflix. For, Tasty drinks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, ju- I think we're just one step away from getting rid of devices. You know, I think our skin is the next digital interface and everything will be holographic, hologram and skin-based sort of device. So I think the body is, you now we're talking about AI, we are that, we are that uh, artificial intelligence, really. It's the one thing we haven't fully understood yet. So that's, I think, where we're going. Cool. Um, so just to finish off talking about drinks, I mean, is there any other sort of um, trends that you see coming in with ingredients and, and flavors that um, we should be sort of looking out for? And it's a question for both of you, really. Where, where are you? I mean, Darren, where are you heading with sort of new innovations um, um, that well, we might be able to borrow for the bar as well, you know? I don't know if it's entirely new, but I do know it's kind of more prevalent nowadays. A lot of people are using vinegars to, to, to add acid into desserts than they were in the past. Um, a lot of people make their own vinegars, like cherry vinegars and raspberry vinegars and stuff like that. Um, and there's a lot more things like that coming into desserts as an acid um, that I've noticed anyway. Um, and like you say, um, like people are using like these kind of, you can get these like brilliant pear vinegars or these like 100-year-old balsamic vinegars. And they're not doing anything to them. They're just adding them as a last flourish and they're, they're, they're very good. And um, I can kind of see them, if they haven't already, coming into kind of cocktails as an acid base as well, you know? Mm. Yeah, they have already. Um, uh, yeah, that's what uh, I was saying, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'd, so shrubs is, is, is well, yeah. the, the shrubs are very old. Um, yeah. You know, sort of preservation of fruits and that sort of thing. And what bartenders have done more recently, I guess it's been going on for about 10 or 15 years, is taking the, um, you know, flavoring the vinegar with the fruit. The fruit often mm. gets chucked, actually, and then, because um, it's not in much of a fit state to be, I guess you could sort of blend it down into a puree or something like that. Um, And then you use the vinegar as the acid base for the drink. Although in most instances, you'd mix it with a little bit of citrus as well because that acetic acid on its own in a cocktail can be a little bit jarring for for most people because they're like, this tastes a bit like I'm tasting really tasty vinegar. Um, Whereas when you sort of pair it with citrus in mixed drinks, it's just that little bit more palatable, but also more interesting than just plain lime juice or lemon juice on its own. I think with the um, different sort of things happening in drinks as we go forward, I think loads of fermentation, things like, and, but it's, this, it's the second use product. So it's things like fermenting almond shells and so that we're using waste product as a, mm. something for the next beverage or the next food. It's all about food waste. It's about using, and it's also about using product waste. So it's not just about reusing some food, but the kind of the leftovers or the dregs or the grinds or the, you know, whatever that stuff is. So I think we can expect to see lots of things like fermented chocolate, uh, pulp, alcohol, things like that, or cacao, bean, pulp, alcohol, that kind of thing. So that we're fermenting stuff that would ordinarily be thrown away. It's got to be delicious though, right? Um, I mean, oh, yeah. we, I do. I do know at yeah. the minute they're um, the cocoa juice, 100% cocoa juice, has coming in, and it's it's kind of very 
uh, like it's this is really that from the fruit of the plant is it yeah yeah, yeah. so like there when, must be yeah. a lot of that flying around the place so i've never seen anyone serve that before and there's a lot of chocolate in the world so, so what's happening what, to all the fruit <laughs> no what they do is when when they're making chocolate and they, uh, they they crack the cocoa bean and they grind it down and they separate the cocoa solids from the cocoa butter and they ferment the cocoa mass and that's where the flavor comes from but there's a lot of kind of juice left off and they've been starting to bottle it and they're starting to sell it now um, and it's this kind of strange kind of um, nectary kind of citrusy juice. Um, it, it's really chocolatey tasty. as well. Is it chocolatey? It, 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 no. Do you know what it is? It's more buttery almost. Yeah. As in, like, there's a little butter finish on it. But then chocolate um, only really gets its flavor after the roast, right? Yeah, I mean, after, after the, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, raw coffee beans don't taste anything like coffee. Um, neither yeah. is the fruit of the coffee, you know. You know, but um, we use it in the kitchen quite a lot. Um, the 100% the uh, Cocoa juice. We, we even do we, we we do a lobster dish with it and everything. Oh, um, no, that would work because lobster and butter. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you know. There's a lot of options with food waste in terms of like incinerating it and creating, you know, the biomass and that sort of thing, fermenting it for energy, that sort of thing. But should it be on a plate or in a drink? I don't know. Yeah, 3D printed takes food waste that might just be that doesn't look so great to be repurposed and digitally prints that into something so spectacular and beautiful that's the possibilities that we you know that we what, so you mean you like blend it up and then it prints it into a shape is that what you yeah like? yeah and beautiful right. shapes okay. I mean, really stunning stunning stuff so i think there's lots of possibilities in that but also like you're saying with the citrus i mean maybe it's not going to be a food item but it can be a product item so it can mm. be used to make furniture Mm. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea of being able to print garnishes for cocktails. That could be pretty cool. Like some sort of, I'm thinking along the lines of like, you know, when you do um, like sugar craft um, stuff, like spinning sugar. Is that what's called, Mm. Darren? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you get the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, But like printing a structure, the more geometric um, structure. um, Well, you could do it with sugar, of course, but you could. If you like what you're saying, you could you could blend down any ingredients into it, including waste yeah. materials. What do you think, Dan? Do you think we'd be seeing more 3D printers behind bars and in, yeah, in yeah, kitchens? Yeah. Definitely in kitchens. Um, I'm not entirely sure about bars yet. I mean, um, like I mean, like you're saying for garnishes and stuff like that. Yeah, it'd be really cool. But definitely in kitchens, like one of the biggest trends, and you've probably seen them on Instagram, is where it's it's the lemon. It looks like a lemon, and then you, you see the spoon going into it. Mm. and it's actually like a cocoa butter shell and a lemon mousse and then it has a center and um, yeah they're all made like like you say 3d printers they they, they you make these custom molds and I, i've seen everything i've seen like uh what looks like a slice of toast but it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich kind of like mousse thing um not a really cool would would you be able to produce something in the space of time between a drink being ordered because you even if it was a small garnish, the customer orders the drink, you start mixing it, press a button, and it's 3D printing their garnish whilst the drink's being made, and then it gets popped on top. That could be quite cool. I think, I think part of it is the viewing of that, isn't it? It's, all the, mm. it's the, it's the theatre of it. But I think maybe it just needs to be making garnishes all the time, you know, whether someone's mm. ordered it or not, because they'd be a bit of a long wait. To, I think you just yeah. need to be able to, yeah. yeah. You'd have to do your menu like beforehand and know that like this is the menu now for this week. So you'd print up like a hundred garnishes or whatnot yeah, yeah. and have them there, you know. And it's all just additional ways to kind of create create a bit of delight and that's it, you know. Um fun in, in the drinks. Yeah. Um love it. Look, guys, uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Um looking into the future, looking at where we're at now with creating delicious drinks and how sweetness and fat and everything comes into it. Um, I think it's a super interesting conversation. So thank you. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. 
Oh, I feel like I could have talked for much longer with Morgan and Darren. And as it happens, I did. If you fancy a top up in the form of a few minutes of additional bonus content, be sure to check out the Bar Chat Short episode available through the same podcast feed. Thanks for listening.